Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us on tonight's program. I'm talking to Marcus Bogdan, who's the fund manager of the Switzer Dividend Growth Fund, but also of Blackmore Capital. And I'm going to talk to him about stocks he currently likes. What what are the, the stocks that are doing well, the themes that are doing really well? And the companies he's covering are uh, CleanAway, Goodman Group, Cube, the healthcare space. He likes Australian Clinical Labs, CSL and Helios, and News Corp in the media space. He's also got a bit of reservations about the banks at this moment and also resources, but his take on these companies are very interesting. Maybe they might be a little bit tricky in the short term, but better in the long term. Then I talk to Ying Yi and Cheng from Coolabar Capital. And Ying Yi is going to talk about is inflation really a scary prospect for interest rates? And I think it's a very big topic at the moment and one that lots of people are very interested in. Her take, Coolabar Capital is big in the bond market, interest rates is their beat. So her view on this is very important. And finally, Helen Tarrant from Unicorn Commercial Property. She's an expert in commercial property. Is it a good time to invest in commercial properties? Are, are these sorts of investments doing really well? And how do they compare against residential investment? Very interesting discussion. So that's the show. Let's kick off now with Marcus Bogdan of Blackmore Capital. Well, joining me now is Marcus Bogdan of Blackmore Capital. He's also the fund manager of the Switzer Dividend Growth Fund. And uh, we're going to look at some developments of re in recent times. Marcus, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Good to be here. So we're looking at the earnings, uh, and you say the momentum is actually a bit mixed. Uh, something on the po positive side and some encouraging updates or green shoots. Now let's go, go through the companies where you think things are looking on the up. Okay, well, we are definitely seeing a, a, a bifurcation in the market, but importantly, on the industrial companies, those companies really facing into the economy, the recent um, announcements through their AGMs or their first quarters have been encouraging. Companies like CleanAway, which is the largest waste management company in Australia, very sensitive to uh, volumes from, from small businesses, from industrial uses. Uh, they are starting to see some green shoots and starting to see a recovery as New South Wales and now Victoria reopen. Uh, so that's a, that's a very good litmus test for the underlying economy in terms of volumes. Secondly, Cube at their AGM uh, indicated that they were expecting to see a strong recovery in earnings compared to what they previously said at their full year result of solid. So they've gone from solid to strong. And okay. now Cube are the, the largest logistics company, vertically integrated company in Australia. Uh, so they're seeing you know, volumes, not only from imports, but exports, but volumes around the country improving. So all of those things are encouraging and suggest that, you know, we should see, you know, an, a re nice V-shaped recovery in the economy as we come out of lockdowns. And then in the early part of next year, we've got the federal election, we should see some further fiscal stimulus as well. Yeah, now 
what about a company like Goodman Group? Industrial um, um, real estate's done very, very well. I, I read only today that the outlook still remains pretty strong for these sorts of businesses. What do you think of Goodman Group? Uh, we like them as not only are they in the right space, that's an industrial property, and those trends look like they're going to increase even further. Uh, they are a global leader in industrial warehousing. And so they're benefiting from what you're seeing with Amazon and online and inventory levels. Uh, and they upgraded their earnings uh, from 10%, uh, which they said at their full year result in August, to their AGM, where they're seeing plus 15% growth for this year. The other thing we do like about them is that I mean, they're obviously executing very well. They're in the right part of the market uh, and they've got a very, very strong balance sheet and a very strong uh, history of execution. Okay. Another area you quite like is healthcare. And I, I've got to say, I'm really happy that we, we kept talking up CSL when it was about $246 and now it's up near 300 or so. That's really good to see that it's, it's rebounded. A great company that was probably not advantaged by the, the lockdowns and the coronavirus. But so you, you, it looks like you like CSL, Helios and Australian Clinical Labs. Why don't you talk to, about Australian Clinical Labs? Because a lot of people wouldn't know much about them. Sure. So Australia, um, Australian, we've got Helios in the portfolio. Just to, to reiterate what we've got in the portfolio in the healthcare, we've got um, CSL, which is uh, Helios, uh, Integral Diagnostics, uh, and Ramsey Healthcare, and Medibank. Uh, so we're positive across the spectrum in, in, in healthcare providers. Uh, and what we're seeing in, diagnost in diagnostics and pathology, which is Helios and Australian clinical, uh, clinical labs, uh, is a recovery in their base business. So to, to, to distill that into its most simplest form, they've obviously benefited from pathology testing uh, for PCR testing for COVID. Those trends continue and I, we expect that, you know, that testing environment will be with us for the foreseeable future. Maybe not at the levels that we're seeing today, but certainly elevated going forward. But importantly, people are now going back for, for general medicine, for, for uh, you know, their general healthcare checkups, uh, and then we're starting to see the recovery in elective surgery as well. Both of those outcomes require pathology testing, blood testing, uh, and we're starting to see evidence of that recover. Okay, so let's go to another sector that you seem to like, and that's media, and particularly you like News Corp. Tell us why. So um, News Corp has always traded at a big discount to um, the sum of the parts valuation, and it's it's idiosyncratic to to that to that dynasty. However, um, in Dow Jones, uh, which is obviously the owner of Wall Street Journal, they've seen a huge uptick there in subscriptions uh, and and that and that um, and that model pricing power there. They've moved into compliance. They've made some very good acquisitions there. So the momentum in Dow Jones is particularly encouraging. But where they're seeing uh, the strongest growth is their investments in digital real estate. Uh, they've got a 60% ownership in REA. Uh, so obviously the volume is in housing there. 
But what we're also seeing is in the US, they've got the second largest uh, digital property provider there in a company called Realtor.com. Uh, and they've significantly turned that business around. Uh, and so that has also been encouraging. And then businesses like HarperCollins have been very consistent earners for them. And then potentially they've got a, a joint venture investment with Foxtel, which has been problematic, but now that is starting to turn around uh, and that, uh, that could well come to the market in terms of an IPO in the in the future so the valuation big discount recovery and earnings and very good execution is the, the thesis around news there was corp. a time when we were younger when you always saw news corp as a very dominant player in its markets but it just seemed too as a business too hard to fully understand but the way you've broken it up it seems as though it's a more transparent organization than before is that a fair call I think, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's had a bedeviled history, but I think in recent years, they've simplified their model. They've been uh, far more strategic in how they've been allocating capital and they've moved into the right parts of the economy. Um, subscription media, uh, digital real estate, they've been very good drivers of earnings growth. Okay, so they're the sectors you like, but uh, a couple of sectors, a couple of businesses that have, I guess, uh, sent out concerns is uh, the banking sector and also resources. And lately, we've seen CBA and Westpac not really excite the market. And CBA actually lost 8% on Wednesday. So tell us what you're seeing uh, in those results. Well, if we take a step back and look at the earnings season for FY 2021, 2021 it was driven by the banking uh, and the materials growth in, in, in earnings. And it's a very different picture than what we're starting to see in 2020, uh, where we're seeing uh, from, from the resources sector, downgrades there in earnings. And now with both Westpac and CBA reporting, both have been disappointing results. And I think the more uh, profound result was certainly CBA because that was unexpected because the underlying loan growth that we're seeing from mortgages has been very, very strong. Uh, and CBA has been leading the market. It's been growing above system in mortgages and business loans and in deposit, deposit growth. But what, at the same time, what we're seeing is it's been an incredibly competitive environment and so we're starting to see pressure there on the margin uh, and then the underlying margin fell by around uh, seven basis points which was unexpected uh, and so CBA's result for the first quarter was around four percent below market expectations. It had a, a more pronounced uh, response yesterday down around eight percent and I think that there was just a question there of surprise and also maybe questioning the large premium that they trade um, relative to the other three three banks. So our thesis um, around the banks is is that on the on the plus side is that credit quality still remains very, very sound. Banks' balance sheets are still incredibly strong, unquestionably strong based on what the regu regulator wants. And so that's important that we, we should still see further buybacks 
and some fur and further growth in dividends, but a, a far more moderate outlook for earnings for earnings growth. So we're going to do it. Um, a, a much deeper dive into looking at the banking sector and CBA and, and Westpac uh, and to see whether that is just a one-off in terms of the pressure that we're seeing there in the margins um, or whether it is a more structural competitive environment. I think the more one encouraging element around the margin is is that now we've started to see that on the fixed rate loans that they're starting uh, to increase uh, the prices there. So hopefully that there will be some moderation in the margin pressure going mm -hmm. forward. Okay, so the, the summary I, I feel is this, you're, you're doing a bit of a watch to see if you wanna reduce your exposure to the banks, but it could mean that in your research, you could say this is actually a buying opportunity that I think over the course of 2022, they might retrace their losses because the economy could be very, very strong. Interest rates could start rising and that would be an advantage to the banks. Absolutely. So there's, there's definitely pluses and minus there. Obviously in the income fund, we're absolutely focused on the dividends. Uh, and the growth of the dividends there. And I think uh, as a headline number, we still expect to see growth in the dividends, which is important. They will be fully franked uh, and there will be some buybacks there, but it's the growth rate, it's the earnings growth rate where I think that there's been um, a, level, a level of sort of heightened scrutiny. Okay, let's go to the resources now. I'm, I'm interested in, in your view on this, Marcus, because I wrote a piece for Switzer Report Earlier this week, where I said, well, if you want to take a longer term view, like, you know, where, where might the miners be in a year's time? My argument was I'll probably be higher. And, you know, I looked at a lot of the analysts and they all kind of agree with me. Uh, we know there's a China slowdown now, which is impacting iron ore prices. But what's your view on where these, these companies might be in a year's time? Mm -hmm. Well, we still like um, B8, BHP. Um, we were always uh, wary of iron ore prices above $200. They're now around $90. And so they're much closer to their long-term average of around $70. Uh, and that's what the Treasury have got in their models as well. So I think we've had the big shock in the resources sector, which we're just starting to see in the banking sector. So I think the, I think the resources sector is much further through this uh, and then if we look at the underlying businesses of BH, BHP, very strong returns on capital, very high levels of, of free cash flow generation, very, very strong um, uh, balance sheets, which leads to still very attractive dividends uh, and a far more favourable valuation. So I think that from a medium to longer term perspective, I think I think your thesis is absolutely underpinned. Okay, so therefore, uh, people who might not have any BHP, this could be a, a good entry point at this po at this point in time. Well, they've come back, um, you know, thirty percent over the, over yep. the last over the over the last quarter. They're back sort of at, at sort of year year lows, and so you know, if you believe in the underlying company. 
those times where you see that big contraction in the price is um, a much better place to, to enter. Yeah, Warren Buffett said, be fear greedy when other people are fearful. And so, it's, yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the psychology of the market's incredibly important. Okay, let's just go before we wrap up. For people who are trying to work out what is a sound investment strategy to pick a stock, just in a nutshell, what do you do to make sure a stock is some is a stock that you want to buy? So there's there's a, there's a couple of of, of, of flags that we really fo focus on, and when we're looking at at companies, um, history is very important. So earnings history and the returns that those companies have generated. So overall, we want companies that have earnings resilience through investment cycles. So we're attracted to higher quality earnings, higher quality companies. And if you look at the portfolio, um, you know, those core names are there, you know, whether it's, you know, West Farmers or, or, or Woolworths or CSL, just very strong history of returns and earnings growth and industry leaders. So that's the, that's the first element that we look at. The second element is balance sheet strength, because we do go through economic cycles. We do have shocks in the economic cycle. And each decade that, that I've certainly wor worked in, uh, we have had um, those shocks that have come. And so if companies have got strong balance sheets, they're able to withstand those shocks and also actually increase uh, the strength of their franchise because they can invest counter-cyclically. So they're the two, it's earnings quality and balance sheet strength are the sorts of things that we look at. Uh, and we are attracted to industry leaders and in industries that are actually growing. Yeah. I must admit, historically, when I developed the core of my portfolio, it was always based on the kind of strategies that you talked about. Quality companies, particularly when the market is really scared and they're dumping everything, it can be a fantastic time to buy quality companies for the long term, isn't it? Oh, ab ab absolutely. And that's why you want to have the dexterity to be able to do that. Uh, and you're going back to that uh, Warren Buffett quote there of taking advantage of when things are, are, are much cheaper. Yeah. Mate, thanks for joining us on the program. Terrific. Thanks, Peter. That's Marcus Bogdan of Blackmore Capital. Thanks for coming to the program, mate. Well, joining me now is Ying Yi and Cheng from Coolabar Capital. Thanks for coming to the program, Ying Yi. Thank you, Peter, for having me on again. Okay. Now, I've got to get you to wrestle with the topic of the day, the slash, the year. People really care about inflation. Got a big number in the US last week. Shocking number, some people said, 6.2%. Some doomsday merchants said, oh, inflation's here forever. Others say it's transitory. What do the, the great minds at Coolabar Capital say about the longevity of this inflation? Yeah, look, inflation definitely has, um, has been a, a very big concern for markets. Our view is that it's likely to be transitory for now. Uh, and I, I think it goes without saying there's been a lot of pent-up demand for, for goods. 
Mm. Uh, especially with the lockdowns. And uh, I suppose, you know, given at the same time, you've had social distancing restrictions. So the supply chains are not able to respond to all of this pent up demand. Um, and there's just no more, you know, fast, just in time inventory given um, a lot of these restrictions anymore. So, you know, what we're, what we're sort of seeing is that sort of cascaded sort of effect. We're seeing labour shortages as well in the US, for example, and to a certain extent here because we've had closed borders. Um, however, as borders do reopen, as economies do reopen, there's a couple of factors. The first factor is that that pent-up demand for goods is likely to revert back into services. So you will see a much more of a balance first, uh, precisely because, you know, we've been, you know, in lockdown, we cannot go outside and use all of these services. But you're seeing it in, you know, New South Wales and Victoria, as things have reopened, as you and I know, uh, things are a lot busier. Uh, people are going back and using those services. Obviously, it will still take a bit of time for that demand to shift over because of what I mentioned around social distancing uh, to a certain extent, but, you know, that, that will take place. And then with respect to labour shortages, obviously in the US it's a slightly different problem, but in uh, Australia you've got to remember our borders have been closed and we've spoken about it before on uh, on your show, whereby we have 334,000 non-resident workers leave Australia and a lot of those jobs would have been in hospitality, they would have been in your fruit picking, et cetera, and that's where we are getting, you know, supply, so, oh, labour supply shortages. I mean, I heard, you know, um, I was reading a, an SMH article, I think, yesterday, which was saying that, um, you know, someone who was cleaning dishes, um, obviously, you know, a very respectable job, um, very laborious job, was demanding about $60 an hour. Yeah. Um, that, that's not what people would expect from a, a dishwasher, um, but because of labour shortages, that's what they were demanding. Um, so, look, as we reopen the borders and we have that sort of influx of these workers again, um, we expect that labour sort of, I suppose, pressure point to ease off a bit. Having said that, you know, uh, we are still only allowing Australian residents to return back to Australia. And then obviously the priority will be international students, et cetera. Um, but so it will take a bit of time. And so the question then is how quick is that transition? How quick is the transition from goods to services? How quick is the transition of opening up borders and for these non-resident workers to return to Australia and start filling up jobs um, and take that pressure off the labour market? And then the question, you know, for, for the RBA, which I'm sure you, you might be asking is, you know, can they wait? How patient are the central banks? Now, offshore central banks have shown that some of them are not very patient. Uh, so we, we've seen, you know, quite hawkish um, actions out of Canada, out of New Zealand, our neighbour. But, you know, judging from the rhetoric out of the RBA very recently, it does suggest that they prefer to be more patient, if anything. Yeah, I, I like the, the take from Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan Chase, who basically said, we, you know, we don't have a customer with supply chain problems who are working on 
finding solutions ASAP. And, and yes. basically, and, and from my point of view, I think if we give ourselves to the middle of 2022, which is a pretty long time when you think about it, if this inflation is only up for half a year, that's transitory uh, on my definition of what transitory is. How about you? Yeah, I, I think it's transitory in, in that respect. Where it doesn't become transitory is when you have high inflation expectations where that becomes very consistent so that will be that will be key because once you expect higher prices you're going to expect higher wages commensurate with that right so uh and and that's what the central banks don't really want they want higher wages because of a tighter labor market not what is a transitory or a temporarily tight labor market yeah. So, yeah, we, we need to watch those inflation expectations because they will ultimately drive our behaviour. Yeah. But what I'm going to say to you now, should you should be comfortable with this being a, a young, modern woman of the, the new internet age. Um, I read something quite brilliant yesterday, which I actually wrote. You, you'd be surprised to hear Ying Yen. Uh, it came from uh, that US research business, Pew Research, Pew Research. And, and I was saying that it's highly likely if the challenges around the new workplace and the demands that come out of it, that a lot of employers will start looking to artificial intelligence, um, um, machine learning, all these sorts of labour replacing activities to, which will be driven by the fact that wages are, are temporarily made higher than they really, they really want to pay, plus globalisation. I mean, they'll look around the world, you know, can, can I get my, my bookkeeping done by someone in the Philippines? All those sorts of forces will start interacting, which is something that the central banks will have to work at. But we're no longer captive of the trade unions in any particular country, that there are alternatives out there. And another little innovation they suggest, I'm interested in your view on is this, they basically implied that the gig economy just won't be for food delivery and, and Uber. It, the gig economy could be transferred into other kinds of occupations and activities where people are basically employing people as contractors as opposed to employers. Yeah, I, I cannot disagree with that. I mean, it's usually not the case in um, financial services where we operate, but it's definitely the case in uh, industries like IT, for example. Yeah. People are, have been contractors from the outset because you work on a project. Once that project is done, you're not going to be there unless you're, you know, continued, you know, IT support or something. But a lot of, yeah, a lot of IT projects are you know, around that sort of gig economy. Yeah. And an interesting thing is that a lot of employees, in a sense, they want to be contractors as well. They want to be independent. And I think they'd love to be independent employees with all the stuff you get as an employee. <laughs> yeah. But eventually, they, they provide the tax office permits it, eventually there'll be lots of employers saying, well, if you want the flexibility of working wherever you want, want and work the days you want to work, maybe you should work with me as a contractor. And that's going to be a very interesting you know, development in the IR space, which will have both cost and inflation implications. Yeah, it definitely will be very, very interesting because, you know, on that sort of front, you know, how, how do you charge as a, as a contractor mm. as well? 
Uh, so, you know, there's potentially inflation in that, uh, in the sense that you don't have the same job stability as you would it as a permanent employee. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and what's also interesting is that, uh, and I know a lot of um, small business people have said this to me over the years, like, um, I'd be happy to gross up my employees' wages as long as they take out their insurance for workers' compensation and all that sort of stuff. So they, so it's done by them. So I don't have to do the administration of it. Mm. They basically get grossed up and get paid to do it themselves. I think we're in for a very interesting industrial relations um, environment. Yeah. It's definitely a, a new sort of an era. Uh, I, I can't say that Australia is at the fore of all of this either, though. Uh, so we'll be taking our cues from overseas. But, yes, it's definitely in train, definitely in, in new parts of, yeah, in new industries as well. Well, let's wrap it up by going back to your where we started, inflation and ultimately interest rates. So, and, and, I'll, and you guys make money out of guessing the interest rate scenario well, not that you, you need to, but it's nice. If, if interest rates rise, that can be good for you guys because you, you are often in floating bonds. Is that right? Yeah, we're 100% floating rate. So uh, we don't take any interest rate risk. Uh, macroeconomic policy and obviously macroeconomic implications of rate decisions have a heavy influence on our decision making. However, we think interest rate markets are the most efficient in the world. And at the same time, because interest rate risk is the largest source of volatility for fixed income, we just choose not to play in that sort of space. So um, what I would sort of emphasise is that in a rising rate environment, which is likely going to be the case moving forward, given that we've been in a declining rate environment since the GFC, yeah. uh, now, you know, in a rising rate environment, the, the coupon or the yield on floating rate notes moves in tandem with interest rates moving higher. So the higher the rates move, the higher the yield or the coupon that you're going to get on these bonds. That's in stark contrast to if you are in a fixed rate bond or if, you know, or in a fund which has fixed rate or what we call interest rate duration risk, because as rates move higher, you've locked yourself in at X rate. It's kind of like fixing your mortgage, except the table has turned because, you know, um, when you fix your mortgage, you're actually the borrower and the bank is the lender. Mm. When you own bonds, you are the lender. Mm. Yeah, that's so. right. Saving the bond. Uh, but the interesting thing is this then, that if interest rates are rising, it should be easier for your company to make money. So Chris might have to cut your wage because life's going to be so much easier for you. <laughs> well, I would argue that my wage expectations would have just moved higher then, <laughs> given my cost of living and servicing my mortgage has also increased. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you, Pete. Well, joining me now is Helen Turant of a buying agency for commercial property called Unicorn Commercial Property. Thanks for joining, coming on the program, Helen. Thanks, Peter. Now, before we start talking about commercial property, you've had a very unusual road to commercial property. You know, you studied law at uni, then got into beauty salons, then got into commercial property. So as um, a famous politician once said, 
please explain. <laughs> well, I always say that the um, the Asian parents are very smart. They're like, why would you need to have more kids when you can have one and realize both your dreams? <laughs> and that's really how it came about. Uh, my mother, well, no, we're first generation migrants. My mother came out here when I was seven with $70 on her. And she was adamant that you needed a trade to survive in Australia. She said, you need a trade to always fall back on. Yeah. Dad was very much, you need to go to university, get your degrees, you know, get your job and, and everything like that. So when I got into uni, mum was like, well, what about your trade? So I was like, well, I don't have a trade. And looking around, I thought, well, at uni I'm doing, I was doing business and law. And I thought, well, one of the things to do is to actually practice some of these principles I'm learning about business in a business of my own. So I looked around and it seemed like beauty therapy was the the right business to be in when you're a solo operator starting out and it's not too onerous in terms of the setup cost and you can start out on your own and then add to it. So that's how I started to learn the beauty therapy trade. And I always have a laugh with my clients when I was in beauty therapy. I can always say to them, well, I can give you skincare advice or I can give you legal advice. Which one would you like? Yeah, yeah that's, that's good. That's a, a really good uh, way to increase your database of customers. But did you eventually actually own or rent or own a commercial property that you ran a beauty salon out of? Yeah, I did. Uh, so I started out with uh, just renting a space out of a hairdressing salon, like most beauty therapists when they start out. So, you know, it's just not your own space. Uh, and then I went and had my, a couple of other actually salons. So we ran to became tenants in and had a firsthand dealing with some of some landlords, some challenging landlords mm -hmm. um, in our time. And I was in the beauty therapy space for probably about 16 years. So okay. I dealt with multiple landlords, uh, then, you know, also bought our own premise that I operated our beauty college out of. So I uh, went through the whole, the whole process. And I guess when I started as a tenant, I realised I really want to be on the other side. Mm, okay. So, um, so you, you got first-hand experience of commercial property. When did you decide that there was a, a potential business in being a buyer's agent in this space? I actually never set out to be a buyer's agent. And when I set out in 2016 with a course on commercial property, it was just about educating everyday Australians on how to invest in commercial. Because what I realised when I first started getting into commercial property in 2012 was that there was just no unbiased information out there. It was like this closed off society that if you didn't ask, you didn't know. Uh, and most people didn't know what to ask about commercial property. And it was very prohibitive for the everyday Australian. So most people who invested in, in, in commercial were high net worth individuals. But I came from a belief that if you're investing in residential, you should have another option in property. And that's obviously commercial. It fits the other half of mm -hmm. the pie. And so when I started out with an education course, all I wanted to do was go around Australia and teach people how to invest in commercial. And then my clients or students from the course said to me, well, love your education, but can you find us a property that matches everything you've taught? So I thought, okay, well, let's go out there and see if I can find them some properties. So I started finding them some properties, uh, and this was 2017, and they loved it. They got their friends and family involved and introduced other people. So I thought, oh, my goodness, I started a business by default and that's how the buyers agency started okay so um when you started this course were they primarily investors or were some people who actually wanted to buy a commercial property to run a business out of 
no, they're all investors. So they're all mum and dad investors who have typically, you know, a couple of residential investments, but wasn't getting the cash flow they wanted from their investments. So they were looking for a cash flow strategy. So they came and learned about investing commercial, the ins and outs and the do's and don'ts, and then went away and invested in their own tenanted commercial property. So I already had the tenant operating a business in that premise. Hmm. So if you had to, and I, I know the answer to this question, but I, I, I would rather you do it because I'm sure you've talked about this before. What is the, the major difference between being a landlord of a residential property as opposed to being a landlord of a commercial property? So the fundamental difference is actually what your tenant pays for. That is the, the number one difference. So your commercial tenants pay for outgoings and what that is is usually your rates your insurance maybe strata uh, and maybe some maintenance fees on the property and where and they pay that on top of the rent they're paying you Mm. so therefore there's less outgoings coming out of your own pockets in residential you as a landlord pay for everything so what i like to say is If you are in the Sydney market or the Melbourne market at the moment for residential, you're really subsidising your tenant's lifestyle. Whereas in commercial, your tenants are subsidising your lifestyle. So which one would you like? Yeah. Okay. Now, let's talk to the other part of investment because, you know, we know one part of being a landlord is receiving the rent, the income. Um, But one of the big payoffs of, of the nastiness of having to deal with tenants is that often you get capital gain better capital gain in residential and maybe less in commercial. That's a generalisation. Have you found that to be true? Well, I think capital gains can only be looked at in hindsight. So when you've taken the the period and look at it, and what we look at is we bought my first restaurant, well, first commercial property, which happened to be a restaurant premise, about 55 square metres or so. So it's equivalent of a one-bedroom apartment. We bought that in North Sydney, in Sydney, uh, in 2012. And we bought that for 360000 So we sold that this year in June for a million and 50000 mm. So if you look at capital gains in the last nine years, the property has essentially almost tripled in time. Yeah. yeah. So does that, capital gains does do that work. Vary, does that vary, do you think, um, suburb to suburb or... Do, do you think properties right around Sydney, say, for example, a commercial property in Penrith, would have had the same kind of capital gain as you experienced in North Sydney? So capital gains in, in commercial works in two folds. It works with the rent going up. So as there's scarcity, so there's not enough places to rent, the rents get pushed up and as a result, the commercial property value goes up. But also it goes up because of market so, like, in, and that's the same as residential. So, as you see in residential, the prices start to go up. So does the commercial. But typically what happens is commercial actually starts, the cycle starts about two years after the residential cycle. It's almost like people in residential start investing in residential, the market starts to boom, and then they realise they can't afford residential anymore. Then they jump into the commercial market and create a boom there. So there is capital growth, but it's just slower uh, in the uptake than a residential premise okay. or property. Now, we've lived through a historically significant uh, period um, where we've seen the CBD properties really be, suffer because of the lack of office workers, and we've seen sub- suburban properties now having people, and I know because 
when there's the odd time when I don't go to the office, trying to get a cup of coffee in my, my local suburban area, I've got to wait. I've got to queue up. But in the city, I walk straight in and get it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the values in the city must must have been affected by the lack of workers. But the values of commercial suburban strips where the shops are working all the time, they must really have gone through the roof in recent times. Oh, absolutely. So what we've seen is that uh, in suburbia, where we're talking out of city, in suburbia, strip shops have become the favourites. We're seeing anything that is Sydney fringe um, going into more your, a little bit of your regional areas. Those areas have probably in the last six months since we started really opening, gone up in value somewhere between 30 to 40%. It's just like a major jump. It's almost like collectively people woke up in February and decided that yes, commercial was the way. And then when people started to gain confidence, we saw that massive jump because there was that change of work, uh, change of work practices from the city into from home. But also I think that we're just learning a new way of work because the CBD is still going to be the CBD, right? It's taken a hit right now. So there's probably anywhere about 30 to 40% reduction in rent at the moment in Sydney CBD. Uh, and this is the same in Melbourne. We're seeing the same similar in Brisbane, less so, but similar in Brisbane. But that's just a moment in time. For an investor who can afford to hold in the CBD five years from now, there'll be a reconfiguration that will, the value will come back and it will, and it will jump again. Yeah. Because supply will slow down, and but demand will eventually pick up. And also, I guess some commercial properties in the city will become residential as well. Yeah, a lot of them will be, a lot of the older buildings, uh, like the old post offices or, the, or even older hotels, uh, they will get they'll become residential but also you'll find the larger like we would have accounting firms and lawyer lawyers offices that would take a whole floor in Pitt Street or Castle Ray Street or one of those uh, iconic streets but you'll find that they'll go to half a floor in the future and that will be taken up by other smaller tenants so we would actually have people back in the CBD but we would actually have a lot more tenants than we did before. Okay um, so your outlook for commercial property for the next year or so. Um, and let's concentrate on the suburban areas because that's where people will be looking, particularly after they listen to you say what you said. Uh, what, what is your expectation? Do you, are you expecting steady growth in prices for commercial property? I'm expecting that from about June next year, uh, June, July next year, we're going to have a lot more confidence back in the market and we're going to see tenants signing up longer leases. So what we've had in the last two years is a tenant's market in terms of renting a premise. They can just walk into a, uh, a to a landlord and say, I want three months off, like three months rent free, six months rent free, half rent for half for the first year, right? And the landlord are held to ransom. I think from June, July next year, that's going to change. They're going to be a lot more confidence in the market and tenants are going to start signing longer leases and we're going to come back to a more of a landlord you know, market where they can start to demand their prices, especially in suburbia, right? And we're going to see that there's going to be a steady, there's going to be steady growth next year in terms of commercial property prices. But especially when that longer leases start to get signed and that confidence comes back in the second half of the year, we're going to see another jump in commercial property prices. Okay. Helen, because of your experience, what do you think are the big mistakes novices to commercial property make? What are the things that people need to look out for? 
the biggest mistake that a novice can make is buying the wrong returns in the wrong area. And and I and I say this because there's a lot of unscrupulous people out there. There's there's a lot of unbiased, not bias. There's a lot of bias information out there. But for example, I just illustrate this. For example, you buy in Sydney and the returns are three to four percent in commercial property, right? and that's standard. If you buy anywhere in Sydney. Most Sydney investors see that and they go, oh, if I get a 5% in Brisbane, I'm doing really well because I'm doing better than Sydney. But that's because you're looking at it from a Sydney point of view. And they go there and they buy at 5%. And what's happened is that they've overpaid Hmm. for the property. So they need to act like a local even though they're not there in that and find someone. It doesn't have to be us. It can be someone local that they trust that can give them the right returns in that area because Brisbane should be maybe at this time in the market for that particular property sit at six, not at five. Mm. But it's easy for them to dupe a southern investor. And this, and I see this time and time again, especially in a market that's peaking. Okay. Um, rising interest rates, do you think that will affect commercial property at the same rate as it might residential property? I don't think so. Uh, the reason is that traditionally commercial property returns have always sat about 1% to 2%, depending whether you're buying in metro or regional, above the interest rate. So back in the time in 2012 when I first got into commercial, the interest rates were at 6%. But we're buying to Sydney at 8%. So today people are buying to Sydney at 4%, but the interest rates at 2 So it's still the same metrics exist. It's just the yields have changed and the returns have changed. Okay. Thanks for coming on the program. If people want to know more, what's your website? HelenTarrant.com or, or Unicorn.com.au. Great. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. And that was Helen Tarrant from Unicorn Commercial Property. That's the show for tonight. Thanks for joining us. Of course, if you want to know more about us, you can go to switzerreport.com.au and that's where we give you some insights into some stocks that might be worth buying or even selling. Thanks for joining us. See you on Monday night.